you turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 22. I come up here with a lot of equipment. I'm having technical issues. I'm having to pull up my notes on my laptop, so please resist the urge to be mesmerized by the bright, growing Apple logo. John chapter 3, verse 22, we'll read down to verse 30. <clears throat> John three twenty-two. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Ana near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete." He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, our lives are not about us, but they are about you, about living for you and for your glory. And that many times, actually for the rest of our lives, that calls us to, to decrease so that you may increase. We pray that you would help us as we walk through this passage, that we have a greater understanding of who Jesus is, of his preeminence, of his supremacy, and that you would teach us to put ourselves or to put others before ourselves, and that we would also, most importantly, put you for ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. F.B. Meyer was a pastor in the 1800s in London. He's known as a great preacher, though I don't agree with some of his theology, but he was pretty well known. He wrote extensively, and many people recognize who he was. Now, at the same time, in London, there was also another preacher, preacher that you, most of us probably are familiar with, who had a growing ministry, and that was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And so, F.B. Meyer's congregation was, in a, it was located in a place where he could not help but see carriage after carriage driving right past his church and going to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, to Spurgeon's church. 
because as many of us know, Spurgeon is a great preacher. He's actually identified as the prince of preachers. And so, as, as F.B. Meyer saw Sunday after Sunday morning, seeing all these carriages flow to the Metropolitan Tabernacle and people not really coming to see him, he became deeply, deeply discouraged. Later in life, he was invited to be a, a guest uh, preacher at a conference, and along with him was another guest preacher whose name was G. Campbell Morgan, who was much younger in the prime of his ministry, was also considered a great preacher. And Meyer would be discouraged yet again because he realized that more people were, were being drawn to, to Campbell Morgan's sessions and his preaching rather than his own. So F.B. Meyer later left that conference, going home, feeling deeply discouraged. And when he goes home, he prays. And then not long afterwards, there's this, there's this talk about, uh, what, uh, about what Meyer is saying. And what he is saying is, have you heard of Morgan's preaching? My God, the Lord is upon that man. You should listen to him. He must increase, but I must decrease. So something happened with his attitude when he began to pray to the Lord. So our passage transitions us away from this, uh, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, right? We spent a couple of weeks just kind of dissecting that conversation, and now we come to this particular event where there's this, where it seems to be like these two different baptisms going on at the same time, which might be an occasion for a particular individual to be filled with jealousy and hostility. So it begins with two baptisms happening at the same time and then ends with a question of what matters most and with a lesson in contentment. So, picking up again in verse 22, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John the Baptist also was baptizing at Aner near Shalim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. So it appears that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing people. But uh, John chapter 4, verse 2, it tells us that Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were baptizing. And probably the reason is because Jesus had his own particular baptism that he hadn't instituted yet. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When he was resurrected and ascended into heaven, and, he would, uh, and then the, the Holy Spirit would descend from heaven and indwell his people who believe in Jesus. That's the kind of baptism that Jesus was looking forward to. And so the particular baptism that, that Jesus' disciples were practicing were most likely John's baptism, a baptism of repentance, but a baptism that was intended to point people to Jesus Christ and to the future baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the author adds this comment that Jesus had not yet been put into prison. So the, the Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they focus on Jesus' ministry, particularly after John's imprisonment. Now here, the author wants us to know that Jesus had a, a, a different, another ministry, a Judean ministry prior to John's imprisonment. And we should consider John's, John's faithfulness to his ministry. Because now that Jesus has arrived on the scene, it wasn't an excuse for John to just up and leave. Oh, Jesus is here, my work is done, there's nothing more for me to do, time for a vacation, time for a retirement, I'm a, it's all good. John did not have that attitude. I love my mother-in-law, and my kids love her as well, but whenever we have her babysit, and Kayla and I are off and we come back, um, the first thing she says, all right, my job's done, the kids are back, to your, back in your hands, I'm out. But that wasn't, that's not the kind of attitude that John had. 
right? Just because Jesus is on the scene doesn't mean that his ministry has stopped, but he continues to point people to Jesus Christ. He continues to baptize people in order for people to look forward to Jesus Christ and to the baptism that Jesus will bring. And as a prophet, he continued to be faithful to his ministry to the point of calling out Herod, the governor, on sin and rebuking him and telling him, it is not right for you to leave your wife to marry your brother's wife, which got him incarcerated, which then led to his beheading. But John remained faithful to his responsibility, right, even when it landed him in prison. Now, that may not be the case for many of us or possibly all of us here, given just the, the level of freedom that we get to live with here in our country, but it does provide us with an example Right, that just because somebody comes along who might do things better doesn't mean that we should stop what we're doing. Or even when things get rough, when things get really difficult, that we continue to perform our tasks, the things that are giving us, giving to us by the Lord. We continue to remain faithful in the things that we're called to be faithful in until the Lord himself tells us it's time to let it go. So in this event, right, there's this Jesus arrives on the scene, the one that John the Baptist has been looking forward to, and now they're both baptizing, John's disciples and Jesus' disciples, which then leads to kind of this spirit of competition between, with, well, not between, but just in the disciple, uh, John's disciples in their minds, in their hearts. Verse 25 says, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over a purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So now we're at this situation that will then conclude with the significance of this passage. John's disciples are having a discussion with the Jew, which is the author's way of identifying a Pharisee. So they're having a, a conversation with the Pharisee with regards to ceremonial cleansing or purification. And we can't know, obviously, all the details of what happened or what that conversation was like, but it must have been connected to baptism in some way. The Pharisees had their own, their own rituals, their own traditions when it comes to purification and even baptism, but it was far different than John's baptism because John ba John's baptism was a baptism of repentance that pointed to Jesus Christ. And even when the Pharisees came to be baptized by John the Baptist, he would not allow them because their hearts were not in the right place. And so this discussion between the Pharisees and John's disciples, and somehow the discussion shifts into this competitive nature. But John's disciples seem to have a problem with Jesus' baptism or the fact that he was baptizing. So maybe the Pharisee was seeking to decrease both of these men's ministries by inciting some hostility to get them to compete against one another. We have no idea. But John's disciples take notice of Jesus' increasing ministry. It appears that Jesus' ministry is beginning to eclipse that of John the Baptist's. And they bring it to John's attention. They say, look, teacher, all people are going to Jesus, which is kind of an overreaction, an exaggeration, because in verse 23, it tells us that there were plenty of people that were coming, not only to John the Baptist, but also to Jesus to be baptized. But Jesus' ministry was increasing. And so we kind of get a nature of this competitive spirit that is in these disciples, which then leads to the second point, a question of what matters most, and John's surprising, surprising response. 
So verse 28, how does John respond? He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That's a surprising response because here's a situation that might provoke some jealousy, some hostility, some envy, some greed, some of the most vicious sentiments that could be in a human heart. Jesus' ministry is surpassing that of John the Baptist. And I don't know what his disciples wanted him to do about it, but they bring it to his attention because they are not happy with Jesus' multiplying ministry. Now, such a reaction presumes that they know better, that maybe that they deserve precedence, right? That we were here first. John, you were before Jesus. People were coming to you. People should continue to come to you. Right? It's what we would presume if we become jealous or envious of another person's success. When you become jealous or envious of someone else's gifts or the talents, the growing popularity or success, in your heart you're presuming that you are deserving of that other person's attention. That somehow that there is something unique and better that you have that they don't, and therefore you are owed all that attention or owed all those gifts and that talent. You believe that you are owed what you think are deserving of. That's kind of what was happening with F.B. Meyer. When people preferred to listen to Spurgeon's and Campbell's preaching than to listen to him, Meyer became deeply discouraged and dejected because he felt people should be coming more and more to him. But, I mean, what was it about him or his preaching that deserved attention? Or maybe he's right to be jealous. Is he right to be jealous about the rise in popularity of these two other preachers? But John has the answer. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So why is John not envious of Jesus' growing ministry? Because what he himself received is, does not ultimately come from his own hands, but it comes from the hand of God. And if John's ministry is decreasing while Jesus is increasing, well, then that is what the Lord has willed. God is the one who had made it so. James, in his letter in the Bible, reinforces this understanding when he writes in James 1.16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. John was content given the situation because he knew that the Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases and he gives to whomever he wills. Dozens of years before John's time, another man understood this and found contentment even in the midst of suffering. Job 121, after having lost most of his family, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The sovereign Lord gives to some and gives less to others. And he will give some more than he gives to others. But it is not our job to question God's motives. Because in the end, the Lord does not have to give us anything at all. But we find contentment in recognizing the fact that everything that we have comes from the hand of the Lord. And he has given us whatever we have 
for his own purposes. And it is not to question why another person has more than what we have. That is how John found contentment. Not only contentment, but he also found joy. Verse 28 says, You yourselves bear me witness that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's description of Jesus as the bridegroom tells us of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, of how he stands above all other things, and also it tells us of the intentionality of Jesus' mission. In the Old Testament, we see a lot of examples of this language of bride and bridegroom. For example, in Isaiah 62, Jeremiah chapter 2, and Ezekiel 16, 8, God speaking to his people, he says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. The Lord's betrothing himself to his people. The book of Hosea, of Hosea is another example. It's, a living, it's an illustration of a living parable, illustrating the, the faithfulness of God to a faithless bride that is his people. And now here is John describing Jesus Christ as the bridegroom who has come for his people. The bridegroom came, left from heaven, to seek out his bride to the point of death. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. John 15, 13 says that no greater, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. There's been no greater love displayed and no greater love story ever told than that of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom coming to save and to die and to be resurrected for his bride, the church, for his people. And it is only in his dying for his people that can, can she finally be transformed so that she's no longer faithless but becomes characterized by faithfulness. People can make dramatic changes to their life. Maybe it's a tragic event. Maybe it's a near-death experience. Maybe it's just something you've seen or maybe it's something that you've read. All it takes is one moment to change something about yourself for the rest of your life. But no event can ever change the sinful human heart and change a person's eternal destiny. Only the death of Jesus Christ for his bride, for his church, could actually and effectively change the heart of man and his eternal destiny. Right, this is what John the Baptist understood. A new era has come. The, the groom has come into the world to redeem his bride, to call his bride back to himself. And not only that, but to, to give to her his spirit so that she would then be characterized by faithfulness. Therefore, John was overjoyed that the bridegroom has come. John is sort of describing himself as the best man of the wedding. One commentator writes this, the friend of the bridegroom had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as a liaison between the, between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presented at the wedding feast. 
He brought the bride and the bridegroom together, and he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and let him in, and he went away rejoicing, for his task was completed. That's how John describes himself. He's the best man who's brought together the groom and the bride. That is his joy. To be the best man in a wedding is an honorable position, but we know that the best man is not the main attraction of the wedding. The guests who also function as witnesses to this event are there to witness and to celebrate the union between the groom and the bride. And it is the best man's joy to be a part of that in a unique and special way, though he doesn't have as much responsibility as they did in the Jewish culture. Maybe it should be that way. Actually, if you were a best man, you probably wouldn't like that responsibility. Now, normally in a wedding ceremony, the focus is on the bride, and rightly so. Right? The groom is great, he's got a nice tux, but, it's, but really, who cares? Right? People are there to see the bride, and she doesn't come out till last. And then what happens when the groom, with the, sorry, not with the groom, but when the bride comes? People stand. People are in awe, jaws drop. People take out their phones. People watch. People behold the bride come down the aisle. Everything else and everyone else, including the groom, is eclipsed by the splendor and the beauty of the bride. But in God's book, according to John, in this marriage ceremony between Christ and his church, it is for Christ, it is for the groom that all people will stand. The bride is beautiful. The bride of Christ is beautiful because she wears the, the wedding dress of righteousness purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. But her spectacular beauty will be eclipsed by the majestic Christ. And when he enters, all will stand for him. And as Isaiah 33, 17 says, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Maybe it's not, maybe the, the appropriate response is not to stand when the king comes, but to get on one's knees and to bow in worship for the king. And this is why John must decrease and Jesus must increase because John is not the main attraction. It's not about the best man. It is about the groom and the wedding celebration. It's about the king and his beauty. That is what he is there to celebrate. They is there to make much of Christ. Right, that's what our lives are to be about as well, about making much of Christ. And we take a special part in that wedding ceremony because we are identified as the bride of Christ. We are the ones who are dressed in robes of righteousness because Jesus Christ has died for us. And that is why we revere him and we worship him and we praise him because he is our beloved king in his beauty. So then as we think about this passage and how it might apply to us, if we think about this, what this seems like two competing baptisms, which were essentially, were essentially doing the same thing, that we're pointing to Jesus Christ, then how can we take this and apply it to ourselves? Well, be content and praise others. You'll never have contentment 
by comparing yourself to other people. It's not going to happen. The only way that we can find true and lasting contentment is when we accept the truth that all good things come from the hand of the Lord. And, and that God gives to whomever he wills. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This might go without saying, but do you realize that everything that you have right now, everything that you own, everything that you would say is yours, is only temporary? You came into the world with nothing and you leave the world with nothing. Even the things that God has given to you. Even our very bodies we leave behind. Our bodies are replaced by a new and glorious body. But everything else, even though they come from the hand of God, will be left behind. This is a struggle of the author Ecclesiastes, that one who lives for these things and then dies and leaves the rest for somebody else to enjoy. Paul tells us we should be content with food and clothing and anything else that we receive on top of those things is extra. It should fill our hearts with incredible gratitude. And also contentment can function as a hedge of protection against covetous and evil desires that can plunge us into destruction. The passage in 1 Timothy is specifically talking about the desire of money, one of the most vicious desires in a human heart. But contentment can also guard us against greed and envy and jealousy and the sins that those feelings can lead us to. Because when we are not content with what we have, when we are not content with what the Lord has given us, not only do we appear to be ungrateful, but we become jealous and greedy and envy. And that doesn't lead to anything good. Hebrews 13, 5 is encouraging. It tells us, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for or because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You should be content with all that you have because you already possess everything, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. In him, you have life in his name. In him, you have the Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of future inheritance, of future rewards in heaven. And so in Jesus, you already have everything that you need. But when we find contentment, it's also important that we intentionally take steps to replace any feelings of jealousy and anger by praising others. Only when Meyer, only when F.B. Meyer prayed and I assume discovered the, the wisdom of contentment was he able to praise the preaching of Morgan to other people. But that's what he did. Listen to Morgan. He must increase, but I must decrease. Right? If you want to combat jealousy and envy, then look at the strengths of other people. Look at their gifts and thank the Lord for them because what they have, because the, the scriptures tell us that God sends his reign on the just and the unjust. God graciously gives not only to his children, but those, even those who do not believe and follow him. 
And so praise others for their gifts, for their strengths, for their talent. Think about those things. Praise them for it. And that's easy to do when you like that person or they're easy to get along with, but it's much more difficult when the person is hard to get along with or somebody you may not particularly like. But you need to protect your heart from bitterness and anger and becoming hardened towards that person. And what's helpful is thinking about their strengths, the things that they do right, the things that they do well, and to praise them for it. And even having the courage to do so in front of them. But even if there is an opportunity, don't be afraid to praise those individuals behind their back. And so whatever those gifts and strengths are that belong to you, that belong to me, that belong to others, remember that they come from God himself. So when we look at another, when we look at each other's strengths and each other's gifts, we should be praising the Lord. God, you have given this person an incredible gift. And even telling them to their face, like, you're really good at doing this. You're really good at doing that. It's what we're called to do. And sometimes, well, actually not, not sometimes, but all the time, the Scriptures command us to put others before our own. And that's one practical way that we do that. To see carriage after carriage transporting all these people to Spurgeon's church it was frustrating to Meyer. It would probably be frustrating to me. I would probably be discouraged as well. I'd probably wonder, God, why didn't you just put Spurgeon's church elsewhere? Or worse, why didn't you give me those gifts? But later on, Meyer found contentment when he prayed to the Lord. And as a result, he was able to praise the preaching of Spurgeon and Campbell Morgan because he knew that God graciously gives to those whom he wills. And it's not our job to question why some have this and we, why we don't have this. Our job is just simply is to praise the Lord and to find contentment in Him. Because again, we have Jesus, and that's all that we need. And sometimes we are called to do the hard thing, and that is to let ourselves decrease and let others increase. Let's pray. Father, there's... There are so many people in the world who might be, who are smarter than we are, more gifted than we are, but greater capacity than we do. And it's so easy to be filled with jealousy and with envy and even to question you. Father, but help us to remember, as John said, that a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. All that we have comes from your sovereign hand, and you give to whomever you will. So we pray that you would help us to find contentment in what you have given to us. Keep us from greedily desiring other things or other talents or other gifts but help us to be content in who you have made us out to be and who you created us to be. And give us the courage to praise others and to allow others to increase and to allow ourselves to decrease. To look at the example of John who pointed to Jesus Christ and that we would remember to point to Jesus Christ, that 
we would make much of him, that he would continue to increase in our lives, and that we would be in a state of perpetually decreasing ourselves so that Jesus would be magnified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.